You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. Gospel of John, chapter 1. We'll be looking at the end of the chapter in, in a few moments. We'll be reading from there. Go ahead if you would find that. This week I was reading a story that James Boyce uh, tells. Some of you may recognize um, James Boyce as the the great Presbyterian pastor. Uh, He tells the story of an English monk who was living back in the 1500s. This monk was known as Little Bilney. He was known as Little Bilney because he was so small. Bilney had been reading and had, become un- and had come under the influences of the writings of Martin Luther. He'd been reading his, his books, he'd been reading his sermons, his commentaries, and he began to move on his life and he became convinced of the need and necessity of the, of the, the Protestant Reforma- Reformation and he joined that Reformation. Bilney recognized, he saw himself, he knew he wasn't a, a particularly educated monk, He realized he wasn't a particularly gifted monk in many, many ways. But he was very aware of another priest by the name of Hugh Latimer. And he knew that Hugh Latimer had incredible giftings. And he was a man of great learning. Bilney began to just pray about how he might witness to Hugh Latimer. How could he bring the awakening that had come as he recognized the glory and goodness and power of the gospel in his life? How could he convey that to Hugh Latimer? He he realized that priests still had to hear confession. So what he did was one day he went into Hugh Latimer's confessional where Hugh Latimer had to listen to him. And while he was there... He began to talk about how he sees himself as a sinner and how he knows that there's no good works that he can do that will atone, that will make up for the sin in his life. He also spoke about how he's been been recognizing the sacrifice of Christ where Christ died in his place and he died specifically for his sin. And further, he, while he was in this confessional, Bilney talked about how that now by faith, the righteousness of Christ had been imputed to him. And it was apart from any good works, it was apart from any good intentions. It was simply a gift of God. Latimer heard that. And he was converted by the simple monk by his confession, and by his witness to the gospel of grace. And Latimer went on to become one of the great preachers and English reformers. He, brought, he, was, he was instrumental in bringing the Reformation to England. And eventually he would even pay the price of sacrificing his life for the sake of preaching the gospel. History mostly focuses on Latimer, not Bilney. 
Yet, it was through Bilney's desire to share the life-transforming gospel of Christ with Latimer that, that Christ came in a powerful way. And Latimer was then used by God in a powerful way to shape and advance the gospel in England. This morning, we continue in our sermon series in the Gospel of John, Come and See. And this morning, we will see from our scripture text how the Lord uses the faithful witness of His people to spread the gospel. So, having found John chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse 35. John 1, beginning in verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him for that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You're Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite, Indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of God. May He help us to delight in it and obey it. Let's pray. Lord God, thank You for Your Word that is always a faithful and true testimony and witness to You. 
And just as we move into this, Lord, our hearts are laid bare before You in Your Word. Lord, teach us this morning. Help us to understand how You have established the witness of Your people as a means by which the Gospel goes forward. Move our hearts toward this, Lord. And Father, as is always my prayer, I know they may be listening to my voice, but it is Your voice I hope that they really hear. You have the words of life. Where else can we go? So address us this morning through Your Word, by Your Spirit. We pray in Jesus, Your name. Amen. First, from this passage, this text, we see this. The purpose of our witness. The purpose of our witness. Again, reading John 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. We didn't read verses 29 through 34. We talked about that last week. So just a quick, quick summary. Last week, John was walking along. He saw Jesus coming. He made the confession, the initial confession. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the following day, we have something similar to happen. John the Baptist is there. His fault, some of his fault, John the Baptist followers are with him. He sees Jesus, and again, he says, the Lamb of God, behold the Lamb of God. And when he says this, two of his disciples heard him, and they turned and started following Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them and then engaged with them. He said, what, what are you seeking? What, what, what's motivating this in your life? And it was interesting, they say to him, um, Rabbi, where are, you, where are you staying? They just want to know where he is. They want to know where they can be with him. He said, come and see. So they came and they, they saw where he was and they stayed with him from that point. Now again, remember, the John who is being referred to here in verse 35 is often referred to as John the Baptist or John the Evangelist. There are many people who refer to him as John the Evangelist. He was the cousin of Jesus on their mother's side. And he was sent by God to do two things. To prepare the people for the Messiah by preaching repentance to the people of God. And he came also to identify for the people who exactly the Messiah would be. John's ministry had been going on for, for some time when we get to this point. He had been preaching repentance of sin as preparation for the coming Messiah. We see here that he is fully now accomplishing his mission by identifying Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is essentially he identifies Jesus as the Christ, the anointed one. The one who had been long promised, the one who had been long been waited for. He is the Messiah. So John knew his place here. He knew that even though the crowds were coming out to hear him preach, even though they were coming out and many were being baptized by John as a sign, as signifying their repentance, John understood he wasn't the one. There were people trying to push him towards that who were asking him about that, wondering if he was the one. And John was very clear, I am not the one. I am not the Christ. I came to prepare the way for the Christ and to identify him for people. The fame and the glory of his ministry did not go to John's head. 
He was not driven by selfish ambition, which would have been easy to give into with all the attention and all the crowds and the popularity. John the Baptist stayed true to his mission. And one day, while he was walking in the area of Bethany, he sees Jesus and he identifies him as the one. Then the next day, he sees Jesus again and says once more that Jesus is the one. He is the Lamb of God. And in that moment, two of his disciples who had been following John the Baptist, who had been listening to John the Baptist, they heard John the Baptist identify Jesus as the one, as the Messiah. And they left John the Baptist. And they went after Jesus to follow him. We are told that one of the two men was Andrew, the brother of Simon, who would later be called Peter. The other one was probably John, who is the author of this gospel. Have you ever wondered how John the Baptist might have felt about losing his followers to Jesus? Was there any twinge of jealousy? Any regret that attention would would go to someone other than him? All that he had done, the sacrifices he had made in his life, and now finally people are listening and people are beginning to respond. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And he knows he's supposed to bear witness. He's been preparing. But you wonder, you ever wonder if there was something in his heart that said, ugh. We have, and this is, this, is, this is stunning to me, we have every indication that it would have been a joy and a delight for John the Baptist to see these two men leave him and follow Jesus. This was his whole mission to prepare the way for Jesus, to point to Jesus, and now he sees people are actually starting to follow Jesus. Men who had been following him. It says, so they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with Jesus. You see, John's heart was right here. His life and ministry was about Jesus. And we're going to find one of the great humble confessions that we have in all of Scripture. happens from John the Baptist in John chapter 3, which we'll look at in a few months when we get there. Where John the Baptist makes this incredible confession. He says, Jesus must increase. I must decrease. Wow. It's one thing to, to talk like, yeah, we should be that way. It's another thing to really feel that and to engage that and to pursue that in his life. Just kind of as a side note here, this is this is such a challenge for us today. I think we're coming out of, a, uh, out of a season in the evangelical church where the star pastor, I think that's somewhat kind of coming to an end, at least I hope so, kind of a rock star pastor who's the center of everything. I think this is a particularly difficult temptation for pastors, particularly for those who are gifted preachers or speakers or leaders. It is easy to let the praise and attention grab our hearts. It is easy to use Christ and to use the gospel for selfish ambition. 
To use that because we want to be seen and we want to be heard and we want to be recognized and we want to be considered the source and the one that people go to. It's easy to love the applause and approval of other people. And in that, it's so easy to then all of a sudden you you start stealing or trying to steal the glory of the Lord for yourself. Church family, pray for your pastors about this. We need it. It is a temptation in the ministry to think that, hey, there are people, they're listening. This is an incredibly significant moment when people sit and listen to you for 45 minutes, an hour. It can really play to our egos and to our pride. Pray that that would never be the case. Pray that John's heart, that Jesus must increase, I must decrease, would always be the heart of your pastors. But even for yourself, as you think about this for yourself, do you ever find yourself in a Bible study and you just want people to listen to you? You just want, you want to come across as, as, being, as being wise or being biblically knowledgeable. You want to have the best prayer. The most insightful comment. I think there's a twinge of that, of what I'm talking about here, that can come in any heart, in any situation. Pray that our greatest joy would be in Christ being glorified, not in our own recognition. And just as God used John the Baptist, John the Evangelist, so He continues to use us to bear a faithful and bold witness to Jesus. It is to be our heart's desire that people come to our Savior. They may hear our words, but we want them to turn and follow Him. The purpose of our witness is so that those who hear of Christ will turn and follow Christ, not us. May this purpose be our purpose May this purpose fill our hearts. May it be our every desire that when we speak of Christ, it is so that those who hear us will end up following Jesus. Our witness is not to a church. It's not to a denomination. It's not to a religious brand. It is not to even to a way of life or to a moral code. Our witness is to the one, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Our invitation is to come and see Him, not us. While it is certainly great, and please don't misunderstand me, while it is certainly great for people to be excited about a church, And to invite people to church. Our true joy and our true glory must always be in Christ being exalted. Our joy and glory in a church must be because that church exalts Jesus Christ. And makes much of Him. Not because the music is so so cool. Or not because the services are relevant. Or because the vibe is attractive but because Christ is preached and people are called to repentance and faith in Him. When Bilney got into that confessional with Latimer, 
He didn't talk to him about Martin Luther's sermons or books. He talked to him about Christ and the gospel. May our heart and desire to be faithful like that in our witness. That is the purpose of our witness, to point people to Christ so that people will turn and follow him. So that their affections will be turned totally to him. So that they would submit themselves completely to him. So that he is the one that would be directing them. He would be the one addressing them and bringing them out of sin into life. Bringing them out of darkness into light. That's what our hope is. Second, we learn from this passage, this scripture passage, the power of our testimony. The power of our testimony, verses 40 through 43. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You're Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So we, we understand, as has already been stated, that one of the two men that left John the Baptist for Jesus was a man by the name of Andrew. Andrew is famously known in church history, in church history as the brother of Simon Peter. Not that Simon Peter is the brother of Andrew. Andrew has always kind of been in the background, so to say, in the shadows. And this, and this is the account of how once Andrew found Jesus, he went to his brother and told his brother about Jesus. We found the Messiah. And Andrew brought Simon Peter to Jesus. That's such a wonderful description, isn't it? Andrew brought Simon Peter to Jesus. Oh, that that could be said of us many times. That we bring people to Jesus. And one of the, those momentous occasions that seemed simple enough at the time, this, this, this one phrase would, 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 be, would have world-changing consequences. Peter would go on to be vital in Jesus' kingdom work. He would go on to be, be essential in the establishing of the church. And when you add to this what we read in, in verse 43 about Philip, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to Philip, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Listen to what Philip did. Philip found Nathanael. And said to Nathanael, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Just as Andrew found Simon, so Philip finds Nathanael. And just as Andrew testified to Peter that Jesus is the Messiah, so Philip testifies to Nathanael that Jesus is the one. He's the one that was written about. He was the one that was promised. He's the one we've been waiting for for, for centuries. That we found him. And then Philip invites Nathaniel to come and see. In other words, listen, I'm telling you true here, but come and see for yourself. Come and look at this. Come and look at him. Just like 
these simple exchanges between Andrew and Simon and then Philip and Nathaniel, the kingdom of God has progressed around the world through those kind of simple exchanges. Because men and women were faithful to testify to what they had seen, what they had heard, and what they had experienced. Because men and women who were faithful to testify to who Christ is, the gospel has gone forward around the world. And that is still primarily how the gospel goes forward around the world. The gospel has advanced not through slick advertising, not through forced conversions, but through faithful testimonies of Christ's people telling other people what they themselves know and have experienced. There is a power in our testimony to the grace and gospel of Jesus Christ. I hope you know that. That when you share with people about Christ, you are not powerless. Number one, the living God lives within you. Number two, the gospel itself is powerful. Number three, your testimony to the gospel is powerful. The Lord could have assigned this task of preaching the gospel. He could have assigned it to angels. He could have selected a... a, could have made a select group of followers that they are the ones who have to do. He gave it to all of his followers to go and make disciples. This is the work the entire church, all of Jesus' followers, are given. Hear what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's that's pretty clear, right? He doesn't just say go witness. He says the Holy Spirit's going to be on you to empower your witness. A primary work of the Spirit of God in our lives is to empower our witness. It is to empower our testimony. It is to make our witness, it is to make our testimony effective and compelling. And it is a means by which we open, the door is open to give the gospel to people. So that hopefully, prayerfully, new spiritual birth results. There is power in our testimony only because of the Spirit who made us a witness to Christ. We tell others what we ourselves have known and what we ourselves have experienced. This is how the truth spread around the world from that small group in the upper room to literally turning the known world upside down because they were faithful as the Lord sent them out and as persecution hit the church and they were scattered throughout the known world, they took the message of Christ with them. They bore a faithful testimony to Jesus everywhere they went. And God saved people through their witness. It's like, a, it's like a witness here. A testimony. Think about a court of law. We've seen enough of these shows. You know what happens, right? You get the witness on the stand. They call him a witness, right? As soon as the witness says, well, you know, I read in the newspaper that this happened. They're like, okay, you're no longer a witness. You're reading someone else's account. We need to know what you saw. 
If they get up there and say, hey, you know, I had a friend who told me, no. What is compelling and what is powerful and what is looked for is a person that says, I saw this, I know this happened, I experienced this. And that's simply what we are called to do as followers of Christ. But let's be clear about something. Our testimony, our witness, is not the gospel. If all you do is just talk about your experience, then you haven't actually evangelized. Our testimony is powerful, but as a support of the gospel, certainly not in the place of the gospel. We don't just talk about Jesus' love for us. We talk about how Jesus is our Savior. When our testimony and our witness is combined with the gospel, there is a power there. When we are saying that the gospel is true, we're saying Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world because He has taken away my sin. I've experienced that. I was once dead in my trespasses and sin. I was once lost in darkness. I was once pursuing myself and my own selfish means. That's no longer the case. Jesus saved me from that. It is powerful to say, I have found something life-changing. Come and see. Come and look at Him. It is effective to say, I have experienced new life. I have a new direction. I have new hope. And it's all because of Jesus. And let me tell you what Jesus did that made that possible. And that leads to sharing the gospel. Because the gospel tells us how we have new life. It tells us how we have this new direction. It tells us how this new hope is in us. It is the gospel that tells us we were dead in our trespasses and sin. It is the gospel that tells us that God was in His Son reconciling the world to Himself. It is the gospel that says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It tells us that we have been born again to a living hope. It tells us that we were ransomed from our futile ways inherited from our forefathers with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The gospel tells us that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you are healed. The gospel tells us that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. That is the gospel. That's what makes life transformation possible. This is not an either or. You give the gospel or you give your testimony. It's both hands. You say, this is the truth, and it impacted my life. This is what we are testifying to, and our testimony can be powerful. We are inviting people to come and see for themselves what we have experienced ourselves. To look at Jesus and hear Him say, come and see. Come on, come look at me. I'm not going to disappoint 
when I was a youth, I had, I had spent a lot of time in youth camps and youth conferences and special teaching times. And it's amazing how much of that stuff I still remember. And I remember very clearly, I was in eighth grade. We were at what was called Super Summer. I don't know what they call them or if they even have them these days. But it was a week-long teaching and worship experience. And we were taught this. We were taught that, that sharing our faith, being a witness, is, is sharing Christ in the power of the Spirit and leaving the results up to God. I, I think that summarizes what we're looking here, looking at here. Being a witness, a faithful witness, means sharing Christ, sharing the gospel, sharing the love of Christ in the power of the Spirit, looking for the Spirit to work, looking for the Spirit to act, to fill us with right words, and then just trusting that the Lord will save by His own, His own work. See, we don't control that outcome. No one, no one has ever saved another person spiritually. Only Christ saves. We can only bear the witness. That's true for your kids too. All you can do is say, this is who Christ is. This is what He's done in my life. Repent and believe. They must respond. The Lord must work in their life. You can't control that. And I think it's been pretty obvious over the history of the church that the majority of people who come to faith in Christ do so because someone bore a faithful witness to them. Whether you grew up in the church and it was a Sunday school teacher or a youth worker or a friend or, or, or someone at your workplace or someone, uh, you know... Uh, who just took the time to love you and share Christ with you. That, that's probably the, the majority of how people come to faith in Christ even to this day. Or someone who is faithful to take you to a service where the gospel, they knew the gospel would be presented. Our testimony doesn't have to be perfect. Matter of fact, it, it most times probably won't be perfect. And if you're looking for perfect words, that's never going to happen. You can grow in that. You can learn to be more effective in the words you choose. But it's about being genuine and being compassionate and just saying, this is, this is what I've seen, what I have experienced. Have you ever heard of a man by the name of Edward Kimball? He was, by all accounts, a timid, soft-spoken man. Not bold at all. But he knew and he loved the Lord Jesus. And one day Edward Kimball had an encounter with, with this young man who was brash and he was arrogant and he was crude and he was a shoe salesman. I don't know if those are connected or not. He was someone people just didn't like being around. But the Lord began to move in Edward Kimball's heart about this young man. The Lord laid on Edward's heart a burden to speak to this shoe salesman about Jesus. Kimball went to the shoe store. He was unclear exactly what he would say. He was certainly unclear about how it would be received. He found the man who was putting up shoes. He was stocking, restocking shelves with shoes in the back. Kimball 
says to him, and he describes this later basically with limping words. That's a vivid, with limping words. He says, I still, I still could, I still never could remember just what I said. Something about Christ and his love was all. That's how he remembered that encounter. He, his assessment was it was just this weak appeal. You know what's coming. God used that faithful witness. Those limping words. The seemingly timid man, this timid testimony to awaken the heart of that young shoe salesman. You know who that shoe salesman was? D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody, who God would then begin to use as one of the great American evangelists. Thousands, if not millions of people, both in the United States and in England, would come to faith because of his ministry. Or God's ministry through him. It was just one man who was faithful to share Christ in the power of the Spirit and leave the results up to God. Finally, from this text, we see this. We have a promise of seeing greater things. The promise of seeing greater things. Verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Philip brings Nathanael to Jesus. And in that encounter with Jesus, uh, Nathanael is deeply impressed by what Jesus tells him. Enough so that he recognizes, his eyes are open, he recognizes that Jesus is the one, that, that Jesus is the Son of God, the King of Israel. Basically, he was saying in that moment, Philip, you're right, this is him, this is the guy. I came and I saw Jesus is the one. And then Jesus says something really unexpected here. He moves to this glorious promise about what his followers will see. If Nathaniel was impressed because Jesus saw him under the fig tree and knew, he was, knew his character as a man without guile, that is nothing compared to what Christ's followers will see. This is a glorious promise that comes to us in our glorious salvation. We will see wondrous, marvelous, even miraculous things happen among Christ's followers in the church. Sinners will repent. That is miraculous. Prayers will be answered. How wondrous that is. Situations will be changed. Hearts will be moved. Marriages will be restored and reconciled. Provision will be given. Opposition will be quieted. A way forward will happen when there seems to be no way forward for people. And in some cases, healing of illnesses and diseases. This is a promise not just to Nathaniel and Philip. It is to the followers of Jesus Christ. We need to raise our expectations, I think, here. 
And we're not just talking about sensational things. We're talking about God working in everyday life. That's miraculous in itself. That is a wondrous thing. The grace He gives us every day as we open the Word. As we pray to Him and seek His face. Then Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, Jesus is referring to, here to an event. He's kind of imaging an, an event from the life of Jacob in the Old Testament. If you remember, Jacob was the father of the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus here refers to a vision or is imaging uh, a vision that Jacob had while he was fleeing from his brother Esau. This is in Genesis 28. Jacob was fleeing from his brother. He's afraid his brother was going to kill him. He was alone. He was exhausted. And he laid his head down on a, on a stone to sleep. And while he was sleeping, the Lord gave him a vision of a ladder reaching from earth into heaven. And on this ladder, he saw angels going up and angels coming down, ascending or descending. See, in that moment, God was caring for Jacob. He was promising Jacob blessings and he was confirming with him the covenant that he would establish and had established with him. And what Jesus does here is he makes himself the ladder. He is now the means by which the mercy and blessings come down from heaven onto earth. Jesus is saying, I am the mediator. I am the savior. I am the one who reconciles heaven and earth. I am the one who makes this possible. And he is also saying that I am the one that secures the blessing of God for, my, for God's people. The angels descending is telling us that just as the angels tended to Jesus in His ministry, so they will tend the people of Christ. When we heed Christ's call to take up our cross and to follow Jesus, we do that first and foremost with the Spirit of Christ who indwells us, that that is the comfort and presence of God within us. Added to that, we can be sure that God sends His angels to help us as well. Yes, we are to understand that God provides His angels to care for His people. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. And to which of the angels has He ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Verse 14. Are they not all, are the angels not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? We read other scriptures that tell us more of the work and the role of angels for God's people. In Psalm 34, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Psalm 91, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of the word. Bless the Lord, all His hosts, His ministers who do His will. We hear this in Daniel, My God sent His angels to shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me.
I think this is a remarkable thing that we sometimes just forget. Our focus isn't on angels, it's on the Lord. But this is a provision of the Lord for His people. Scripture tells us this. We see it again and again in Scripture. Some people take this too far and they want to say that everybody has their own guardian angel. That's saying a lot more than Scripture says. We are, what we are told in Hebrews 1 is so much better anyway. Not that we just have one angel. It says all the angels are ministering spirits for the sake of Christ's people. Not just one, but all. I love how John Piper says this. He writes, This means that everything angels do everywhere in the world at all times is for the good of Christians. An angel who does something by God's assignment anywhere in the world is fulfilling the promise that God will work all things for the good of all Christians everywhere. This is a sweeping and stunning promise. All angels serve for the good of all Christians all the time. They are agents of Romans 8, verse 28, that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That's encouraging for us. It's not greater than the Lord Himself and the Spirit that resides within us. It's not greater than the Word of God that guides us and leads us into truth. But it is part of how God cares for His people. The angels attend us doesn't mean that we will never experience pain. It doesn't mean that we will never come to harm. It doesn't mean that, we will, that, that persecution will stop because we know Christians have experienced all those things. This is no guarantee of a, of a life free from pain or suffering or opposition. What we are told is that in the middle of this life, we have angels who are always working God's grace for our good and for His glory. And we can be encouraged with that. Another provision of the Lord. Jesus said, you're going to see greater things than me just being able to see you under that fig tree and know your character. You're going to see some pretty incredible things, greater things than these. We know the work of God and His angels are part of that greater thing that we continue to enjoy to this day. In his book on angels, Billy Graham recounts a harrowing experience of a missionary couple back in the middle, like 1860s, middle 1800s, 1870s. His name was John Patton. And he and his wife were missionaries to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. This was a dangerous work. Two missionaries, before, he, before John and his wife had gotten their two missionaries, had gotten basically off the boat and were killed almost instantly. It was a dangerous work taking the gospel and the love of Christ to a people known for cannibalism. Their lives were often in danger. At one point, John talks about how the local tribesmen surrounded their home and it was obvious they had come to kill these missionaries. And the Pattons got down on their knees and called out to the Lord for help and rescue. And that continued all night, but they never actually attacked the house. They could hear the savage yells. They could hear the cries, but nothing happened. They survived the night. When they looked out, every, all the tribesmen were gone. It was only years later after... Years of just 
bearing witness and enduring all kinds of difficulties and suffering, uh, the gospel began to take root and the chief of that tribe came to faith in Christ. And John Patton asked this chief years later why they did not attack that night. And the chief replied, who were all those men who were with you? Patton said, there were no men with us. It was just my wife and myself. That confused the chief. He said, there were hundreds of tall men in shining garments with drawn swords circling around your house so we could not attack. God has sent His angels to keep the missionaries that night from harm. He can work that way and His angels can do that. Not all the time. He didn't do that for the two missionaries that had gone earlier. But we do know that the Lord sends His angels out Not being harmed is not promised to each of us, yet we know of missionaries who have prayed and have lost their life, men like Jim Elliott, but God used his death to further the gospel in that mission field. The abiding truth is whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's people. To live is Christ, to die is gain. These are the things that tend to us and it gives us the freedom to lay our lives down for other people. Because to have life, you have to lose it. But this we do know, and I think this is part of what Jesus was saying here. God sends His angels as ministering spirits to serve the people of Christ as we live our lives to honor Christ and to make disciples of all people. This is part of God's provision for us, and we should be grateful for that. All that we have looked at this morning, our purposeful witness, our powerful testimony, Jesus' promise of great things, all this is made possible because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray.